in your Bibles to our passage this morning as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Thus far, God's holy word. You may be seated. And let us ask him to to place his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is to us, to your church. We know that it is useful and profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and for the training up in righteousness. Father, help us to know true doctrine and how we ought to live. Teach us our doctrine and our duty, our faith and our practice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The most famous soliloquy in all of Shakespeare's works is probably Hamlet's to be or not to be. That is the question. Well, in this soliloquy or in a the speech to himself, Hamlet is contemplating life and death and which one is better. Hamlet had been having a rough go of things. His father, the king, had recently been killed and his mother married very quickly after his death. And and what is worse is she married his father's killer, who happened to be the king's brother, Hamlet's uncle. His father's ghost then appeared to him, asking him to avenge his death. 
And on top of all of this, he knows that the girl of his interest, Ophelia, is spying on him. Hamlet has known better days, and this leads him to ponder life and death. He knows that death would help to avoid life's pains, such as being spurned in love, or or facing life's humiliations, or being insulted by arrogant men, or finding mistreatment by bad people. Hamlet recognizes that life is filled with pain. And at first begins to think that maybe death is the answer to life's problems. But then he contemplates the consequences of death. And for Hamlet, death brings a fear of the unknown. Perhaps the the toils and tears of this life are nothing compared to what will come in the afterlife. Since Hamlet does not know what lies after death, he simply states, to be or not to be. That is the question. Well, maybe for some, this is a major philosophical question. But it is not the question, is it? Jesus poses the most important question in life here in our text this morning. He asks, but who do you say that I am? This is the most fundamental, the most essential, the most crucial question in life. Because how one answers that question results in life. Or death. It results in either eternal life in heaven or in the second death, which the Bible speaks of as eternal condemnation in hell. This is the question that Jesus poses to his disciples on this occasion. And as we examine this passage, we are going to look at it in four parts, in four ways. First, we're going to look at the question itself. Secondly, we are going to look at the disciples' answer. Then we're going to look at the response of Jesus. And finally, the effect. The effect of confessing or professing Christ. So we will look at the question, the answer, the response, and the effect. Well, since the opening of this book... Luke has wanted the reader to have certainty with regard to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. The first few verses of this gospel, if you can remember back to when we began this series well over a year ago, that very first passage read, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, nine chapters later, Luke is still attempting to bring a certainty 
with regard to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. In fact, if we we just look summarily at what he has told us thus far in this gospel, we we see that that in chapter 1 he began with the miraculous conception of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. He looked at and told us about the supernatural conception of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, overshadowing the Virgin Mary. And then in chapter 2, we have the angel's announcement of the birth of Christ the Savior to the shepherds. Later in that chapter, we have the testimony of three witnesses. The Old Testament law required testimony from two or three witnesses for evidence to be presented. And we have the testimony of Simeon and Anna the prophetess and the third witness as Jesus' very own parents. All of them giving evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. In chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ by announcing his coming as a herald does for a king. We also have in that chapter the testimony of the Father's voice of approval heard from heaven and the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. Luke even gives us Jesus' genealogy to show that he is David's greater son, that he is Abraham's seed, and that he is the second and last Adam. And then in chapter 4 we see that Christ will not fall to temptation by the devil, but has come to reverse what the first Adam brought into the world, namely sin, death, and the tyranny of Satan. Immediately after his victory over Satan in the wilderness, he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and proclaims that the messianic texts of Isaiah 61 and 42 were fulfilled in their hearing. And since that chapter, since then, he has healed much of the region of Galilee from their illnesses and diseases. He's casted out many demons and even performed miracles over nature. He's also raised some from the dead, showing that he is Lord over all. See, Luke has been writing to make us certain about who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. When our present chapter and in the one that precedes it, Luke has really begun to make the reader begin to ask, who is Jesus? In chapter 8, when Jesus calmed the winds and the waves that came from this mighty storm, the disciples asked the question, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And then in chapter 9, when Herod heard about what the apostles were doing under Jesus' authority and commission, he asked, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things. You see, in each of these cases, we are to be asking ourselves. Luke wants the reader to ask themselves what they believe about Jesus. 
See, this is the preeminent question in all of life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, in our text this morning, it was the disciples' time to answer that question. It was an important time for the disciples. And it was the most important question of all. And the importance of this question is underscored here in the text by the prayer of Jesus. Luke points out seven times in his gospel that that Jesus goes off alone to pray. And Luke usually points this out for two reasons. First, just to show the importance of prayer itself. If Jesus, God the Son, needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? He's showing the importance of prayer itself. But secondly, he often does this to show the significance of what is about to take place in the text. For example, back in chapter 6, Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, and when he comes down, he selects the twelve apostles. His prayer to the Father at that time was for the purpose of choosing these men. Well, here in this chapter, he goes to the Father in prayer, And then following that, he asks his disciples to profess their faith. Now, Jesus may have been praying about many other things at that time. But it seems evident that he was praying for his disciples' faith. He was about to ask them the most important question to ever be asked. And so this occasion would certainly necessitate prayer. This ought to tell us something about praying for our unbelieving friends and family. This is not to say that the disciples were unbelievers at this time, but they had not, as of yet, professed their faith. We need to understand that it is God who enables us to believe in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, in a moment, we will see that Peter correctly answers Jesus' question. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus responds to Peter saying this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, people may have enough knowledge about Jesus to be saved, but only God can persuade and enable someone to believe in Jesus Christ. Peter had been given enough testimony to know who Jesus was. But only by the Spirit of God could his heart and mind yield to the truths that he had seen and heard. We need to pray for our loved ones who do not know Christ so that God will open their eyes to know Jesus Christ in a saving manner the way he had for his apostles. We need to pray for our non-communicant children who have not yet professed their faith. That God will enable them to profess that Jesus is the Christ of God. And this brings us to the answer to the question. Notice first of all that Jesus really asks two questions in this passage. First he asks the disciples who the crowds said. That he was. 
We've seen this already in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Some thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or Elijah or some other prophet. Obviously there were some who were confused about who Jesus was. But do not think that Jesus was asking this question because he did not already know what the crowds thought about him. He asked this question for the sake of his disciples. He wanted them to reflect upon the public opinion of the crowds before he directly asked them their opinion, their belief. And we know this because in the original language there is emphasis placed upon the you. But who do you say that I am? With respect to these two questions, William Hendrickson states in his commentary, A true believer is one who is willing, whenever necessary, to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly to express a conviction that is contrary to that of the masses. In the best sense of the term, the believer is willing to stand up boldly in the interest of the truth. End quote. And people had all sorts of opinions about Christ, about Jesus. The most popular opinion was that he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others thought Elijah, and some thought another prophet. But Peter, as the spokesman for the other disciples, on this instance, got it right when he answered that Jesus was the Christ of God. Well, today, just like in Jesus' day, there are all sorts of differing opinions about who Jesus is. But when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses say that he was just a man in the first creation of God, when liberals claim that he was just a good ethical teacher, when Muslims say that he was merely a prophet, a true believer will stand boldly for the truth of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. He is the Christ of God. And this entails not only who he is, it doesn't only tell us about his title, but it also tells us about what he would accomplish. And so when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ of God, what was he claiming? Well, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ in the Greek, it, it is the, uh, the Greek word for the, Messiah, the Hebrew Messiah, which basically means the anointed one. What Peter confessed was that Jesus was the long-expected Davidic king that would be commissioned and empowered by the Spirit to deliver God's people from their enemies. This is what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Well, how did Jesus respond to Peter's confession? Well, he first commanded him and the other disciples not to tell this truth to anyone. And we wonder why. Why would Jesus do something like that? 
Peter had just made the greatest confession that we have seen thus far in Luke's gospel. And then Jesus tells the disciples not to go and tell anyone about this truth. Well, there are some reasons that Jesus might do this. First, Jesus knew that the people of Israel were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They were wrongly expecting a political leader that would deliver them from their Roman oppression. If the disciples had run out and told everyone that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah of God, he would have brought unwanted attention upon himself, which might have brought his ministry to, to a screeching halt before it was his appointed time to die. If the Romans begun to think that Jesus had come to overthrow their power, they might have sought his death even sooner. If the, his Jewish opponents began hearing claims that he was the Messiah, they may have sought to kill him even sooner than they did. And so he commands them to tell no one. But a second reason in relating to the first is that the disciples may have come to a true and working knowledge of him, but they still did not understand all of the meaning behind his Messiahship. Before they went out to proclaim Jesus as the Christ of God, they needed to better understand what type of Messiah he was. They needed to better understand the nature of his Messiahship. And that's why he goes on to tell them. You see, Jesus begins to foretell his death, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, with this description of his messianic work, he is proclaiming that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and following. He had not come for nationalistic movements against Rome. He had come to deliver his people from their most dreaded enemy. He had come to suffer for their sins and to save them from the tyranny of the devil. Jesus has already shown himself to be divine in this gospel. But now more than ever, we have to conclude that he is divine. He had come to do a work that no mere man could accomplish. Sure, he was a man and fully a man. He needed to be a man because if a man was going to be saved, then a man would have to suffer the punishment of sin. Jesus was more than just a man. He was also God. He was fully divine. And he must be divine. For if he was not, then he would have fallen under the weight of sin. Men are sinful. And therefore, Jesus needed to be more than a man. Furthermore, as a mere man, Jesus would have been ruined by the infinite wrath of God that was placed upon him at the cross. We know that he was not ultimately ruined, was he? The infinite wrath of God was certainly laid upon him and he died and suffered the pangs of death for a time. But we know that he rose from the grave, proclaiming victory over our sins, over Satan and over death itself. Here in Luke's gospel is the first 
prediction of Jesus' death, or at least Jesus' first time to predict his death. But he goes even further than just claiming that he must suffer, die, and rise. He even predicts that his death will be on the cross. He does this indirectly by telling his disciples that they must follow in his footsteps. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus is predicting his death on the cross. If anyone would come after him, then they must pick up their cross daily, just as one day he would pick up his cross. In other words, if anyone is to be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus, they must daily die to themselves and to their selfish, sinful desires. And just as Christ rose again, so too they must daily rise to new life in Christ. You see, this is the effect of true belief. The one who has truly placed their faith in Christ will, as a result, put off the old man of sin. He will save his life by losing it. Have you ever pondered what that actually means? To save one's life by losing it. I think Paul gives perfect commentary on this verse in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Listen to what Paul says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to save one's life by losing it. See, Paul possessed Christ by faith. And as a result, the effect was that he lived his life for Christ. Paul is the perfect example of one who saved his life by losing it. And it's not easy to do this, is it? We are by nature selfish, sinful people. 
It is far easier to profess Jesus to be the Christ and then to live for yourself. It's far easier to have the doctrine down, but not to live up to the life of a true disciple. But what good does it do you to live after the sinful flesh if it causes you to lose your own soul? Indeed, even if you gain the whole world, yet forfeit your life. So what if we gain all the money or all the power that we want? The house that we want, the cars that we want, the spouse and kids that we want. I enjoy lifting weights, but so what if, if we gain the body that we want? Or the career that we want. If we gain the whole world. Yet lose our souls. What will it profit us. But eternal condemnation. It's not wrong to have some or even all of these things. But pursuing Christ. Should be our heart's desire. To truly believe that Jesus is the Christ. To truly believe what one professes when they claim that Jesus is the Christ of God will result in picking up their cross daily and following after him. See, the life of a true disciple is a difficult one. Sometimes you might hear to be a Christian gives you the easy life. Well, there's certainly a peace and a joy that comes with being a Christian, but it is not necessarily the easy life. It is a lifetime of battling against our own selfish and sinful wants. It is a battle of fighting against the remnant of sin that remains in us. But this is the cross that we have to bear. This is what it means to pick up your cross daily. And to follow him. To put aside our own selfish desires. And to live for Christ. Hamlet contemplated death as a way of avoiding life's difficulties. Ironically, Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to gain true life, life in the full. They must add to their life suffering and difficulties. See, true followers spends their life doing just that. And it's not that we can do this on our own. You see, apart from the work of God's Spirit converting us and then the rest of our lives sanctifying us, we would never be able to do this. It is nevertheless our responsibility to take up our cross and daily follow Christ. To not do so is to be ashamed of Christ. And to be ashamed of Christ results in Him being ashamed of us at His return. On the other hand, confessing Christ will result in Jesus confessing us before the Father. In fact, Jesus tells His disciples in this passage that they could not afford to be ashamed of Him because many of them would see with their own eyes the kingdom of God before they died. 
And this, of course, happened to many of the disciples in different ways. Some of them saw the kingdom of God coming in the very next passage at the transfiguration when Jesus showed them his glory in the transfiguration. Showed them his glory in all of his kingdom. Others saw it at his resurrection and ascension. And especially at the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost. You see, these events would affirm that what Jesus was proclaiming to them was indeed a reality. And therefore, they could not afford to be ashamed of him. Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the question. Is he just a prophet? A good teacher? A mere man and an ethical example? Or is he your savior? who lived a righteous life in your place and died a death meant for you in order to take away your sins and to give you his righteousness? Is he the Christ of God, the Lord of your life, the one you pick up your cross and follow after? Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the question. How you answer will have eternal consequences. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we do profess Jesus to be the Christ of God. And Lord, we need your spirit to help us with this confession, but we also need your spirit to help us to put to death the the misdeeds of the flesh, to pick up our cross and to daily follow him. Lord, if you were to let go of us, we we would not do such things. We could not continue on, but we know that you hold us in your hand and that you will not lose any of your own. So help us then to walk in a manner worthy of Christ and of you and your kingdom. Lord, we do pray for our loved ones. We pray for our communicant, non-communicant members and, and ask, Lord, that you will increase their faith for those who who may have some knowledge of you and belief, but have not yet professed. For those who do not know you, Lord, we pray that you will open their eyes and and help them to profess Jesus as the Christ of God, whom you sent to save us from our sins. Lord, help us uh, to minister uh, to those who, who do not know you. Help us to minister to those who have not yet professed you and help us to be an example to them as we pick up our cross and follow after you. Help us also to do just as the Great Commission says, to teach all that you have commanded us. Lord, we pray that your spirit will be with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.